With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Latina to Latina. For this episode, I flew across the country from Miami to meet a fellow Cuban who is getting a lot of buzz in Hollywood. I'm talking about Gloria Calderon Kellett, the executive producer and co-showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. I even got to visit her office at the Sony Pictures lot, which, to be honest, is like most offices, except that in the buildings nearby, crews are taping some of America's favorite TV shows. This rare one-on-one gave me a glimpse into what makes Gloria special, how her mind works, and how her sense of self and her creations are rooted in her upbringing. We're in your offices. We are. Sony Pictures. I got sort of emotional walking up to your office. This is such a big deal, Gloria. Like, do you remember every day how it's a big deal? Yeah. Yeah, for sure I remember every day. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get an email or a tweet or something of somebody like, can you help me? And it just speaks to still the deep hunger in our community and how it's really difficult to find that first job and to find that first leg up. And I do a couple of calls a week, like mentor calls, What I'm always leaving the call with is, it's going to be okay. It's going to take a minute. You know, remember that my overnight success was 12 years. Yeah, no, not a day goes by that I don't feel so grateful that for whatever reason I was able to break through a very difficult industry. And it's been a really fortunate journey for me. I'm I'm wildly grateful. What do you see as your first big break? There's so many, right? There's like 20 big breaks that happen along the way. I mean, Mark Reisman gave me my first job. That was a really big deal. He was kind enough to sit down with me. For someone who doesn't know Mark Reisman. For someone who doesn't know Mark Reisman, he was a writer on Frasier. And when I first got an agent and manager and I just didn't know anything, I said, I just want to sit down with a showrunner, any showrunner. And he was kind enough to have coffee with me. And let me tell you, now that I am a showrunner, I don't have time to have coffee with anybody. It is impossible when you are trying, especially with mommy guilt. So 
now looking back, what a huge deal it was for him to take time out of his day to have coffee with me. I'm so grateful. And during that coffee, I asked him every single question I could think of, and he was kind and answered. And then he got a show on the air and then hired me. So that was my first way in was Mark. And, and that show was? Quintuplets on Fox. Uh, and on that show, I met Carter Bays and Craig Thomas, who went on to create How I Met Your Mother. We got on beautifully, and they hired me on that show, and I worked on that show until I had my daughter. And then after that, I went to Rules of Engagement and Mixology and Devious Maids and iZombie, and I really got a chance, which is also kind of rare in Hollywood as a television writer. You're usually caught in a genre, and I was able to do multi-cam, single-cam, one-hour drama, and one-hour procedural, which is rare. And the great thing about having done that is that at the end of it, I was like, First of all, I'm a com- I think I'm a comedy person. If I was on the fence now, I'm not. And I love multicam. I love it. The Even multi- though people complain that it feels dated? There are certain multicams I cannot watch. But I'm a theater lover. So for me, the best multicams make me feel like I'm watching a great play in an audience. So for someone who doesn't know what a multicam show is? A multicam show is shot in front of a studio audience. It's mostly three sets like there would be in a play. And uh, everything that is recorded is actual live recording from the audience. It's not canned laughter, which some shows do, which is a guy that brings in a box that (laughs) really with the sound of laughter and they just add laughter to scenes. That's not that's what we had to do on How I Met Your Mother because we had a three day shoot. So that was canned laughter, actually. Um, But on uh, many multicam shows, it's a live audience. So for me, the theater experience is what I love. I had not realized until I was preparing for this interview that you have two kids. And yeah. so <laughs> I, and it was in an interview with you and Tanya Saracho where she was talking about, you know, and then, and then Gloria went on maternity leave and I was like, Rrr! how do I keep you- them? I keep them out of the press on purpose. Right. My husband and I, my husband's a cartoonist. We've both decided to live very public lives. And so we want to honor that our kids are their own people. So yeah, most people don't know we have kids. <laughs> But what was interesting to me about that is like, how did you know it was time? I mean, did you have a hard career to get into? And then you're like actually hitting your groove. How did you know it was time to have a baby and that you could step away from work for a little and that there would still be room for you when you got back? It's so interesting. I always knew I wanted kids. I thought I would wake up one day Mm -hmm. and go, today is the day. Same. Today is the day I am ready to be a mother. <laughs> then it didn't happen. It just didn't. I just was waiting for that to happen. It didn't. It really did not happen for me. And I think there's a. I want women to talk about this because I've talked to so many of my friends who were like, "When did you know?" And it's like, you don't know. For me, I didn't know. I knew that what that when I pictured my life, and when I pictured my aging life, and when I pictured everything in what I wanted from this mm-hmm. life, it included children. So. My husband and I, I mean, also we got to, we were together seven years before we had kids. It's not like, you know, we were, we weren't bored of each other. We weren't, it wasn't like we needed to add a new character to this sitcom because it's <laughs> dull. It was like, this is good. I don't know. I like this. We really sat down and said, well, I guess like. How old were you? I was 32. Um, I was like, I mean, listen, I'm in my third, like, are we, what, what are we doing here? And we were like, well, let's just like try, right? Let's give it a try. And. In terms of work, I just felt like I don't want to stop my life mm-hmm. for things I want. It's going to work out, and I'm going to create a life that's going to make it work out. 
So I didn't feel the pressure of I'm going to lose my career if I have a family, thankfully. And I was at How I Met Your Mother at the time, and those guys were so sweet, and I felt supported. So it didn't occur to me. It was difficult, and both times I got pregnant, there was there were complications with work, right, that I didn't anticipate. But I was really glad that I did the thing I wanted to do and didn't let that stop me. Yeah, what I found most surprising was after I had her, how I, I just thought, like, I am a machine. I have worked my yes, entire life. Right. I love work. Work is my baby. I'm going to have this baby. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have my other baby. And then all of a sudden I had this baby and I was so in love with her. I mean, like, obsessed. Like, it's it's hard to understand until you go through it where you're just yeah. like, I just, it's like the first three months of a relationship for the rest of your life. Right. You're just like, I just want to be with you all the time. Yes. And then I had to go back. And it was harder to go back both for me and, and you know, I'd lost some of my heat. Like there is some reality to stepping away and then going back and having to reintroduce yourself and being a mom when you reintroduce yourself because like in our society, it's not cool to be a mom. Yeah. No, I would definitely say the hardest part was returning and feeling like I had to be exactly who I was before. Which you're not. Which you're not. It's like a bomb went off to your self-identity. So I was really grateful. I took a year off after I had my daughter and I just developed and that was a gift to myself. It was hard to leave How I Met Your Mother. I loved that show. I loved those people. Um, but it was ultimately a very good thing that I got to just sit and and be and heal and be a person. With my son, I went back to work eight weeks after having him. And I should not have done that. It Were you was nursing. I was nursing. I was <sighs> I was pumping at lunch. I was pumping in the room because Which I overheard. Room were you in? I was at Devious Maids at the time, and I overheard a coworker saying that um, I was. It was not fair that I was taking extra breaks in the afternoon to pump. Stop. So I was like, "Then I'll pump in the room. You're going to see these boobies. Then here we go." Well, I was covered. (laughs) I mean, I didn't do it out in the open, but yeah, I was like, "All right, then I'll pump in the room." And it was interesting. I had a lot of. At the time, it felt like a badass move, right? And I felt badass every time I did it. Like, screw you guys. Especially Here with I the am. sound of that machine. Like, yeah, because it kind of put everyone to sleep because it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of like a sound machine. But later on, I felt guilty about it because I was like, have I set up the, the men in this room to think, to expect that nursing mothers have to pump in the room? I hope I didn't. And it's the, it's the guilt, but we carry this guilt, right? No matter what we it. do, no matter what we do, there's guilt. There's a guilt. There's a guilt. There's a guilt. So... Uh, yeah, that was too fast. I didn't feel healed. I didn't feel really emotionally ready. Uh, I wish two is different than one. Two is different than one. And I was also, there was a mad commute. It was an hour and a half over to Disney and back. It was, it was uh, uh, taxing for me. It was a taxing um, situation. You started your career acting. I did. Still an actor. I'm going to be on yeah. season three, which yes. everyone is very excited yes, about. Yes, I know, I know. And... I've heard you talk a lot about sort of standard fare that you would go on interviews and and auditions and because you were Latina, it was like, do you want to be gangbanger girlfriend number one or gangbanger girlfriend number two? Right. And so... Or prostitute sometimes if I was lucky. There'd be be a prostitute. That'd be fun. Um, And so in part, your writing was motivated by the reality that there needed to be more roles for women like you that were 
are actual life experiences. Not that those aren't life experiences, right. but there's a broader diversity of life yes, experiences. Yes, I also feel like we've heard that story, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a new story. That's a, that's the same story. And based on, you know, Annenberg, USC, they do all these great studies. And what America sees of Latinos on television is largely criminalized. And that's dangerous. It's just dangerous. If you live somewhere where you have no experience with Latino people and what you take is what you see on the news or what you see on television, you're going to form, of course, a very afraid, very fearful, very, uh, who are these people? I don't understand them. They're, they're, I just worry about that so much. I worry about it so much, especially when it comes to policy and things like these children being held in cages. I understand that it's easier to close your eyes and ears to that if you have dehumanized that experience. And so the humanizing of that experience is what is very, very important to me in all the work that I do. So talk to me about how does, you got a call that Norman Lear wants to do this show. Yeah. And is there a part of you that's like, no media? I mean, listen. I remember exactly where I was. And it was like, what? Where? Where were you? Oh, I I just left a spin class. (laughs) I I say that because it makes it sound like I spin all the time, which I wish I did. I don't really anymore. But I had to like level myself on my car because I was like, what? And then immediately my thought was, I don't know if you should do it, but I'm not going to not meet Norman Lear. Like, yeah, I'll go to that meeting. Of Uh course. So I went and the fr- I tell people like the first 30 minutes, I couldn't tell you what happened because I, I don't know. I was in a what's happening and there's freaking pictures of him with presidents and you're like, what's going on? Then he really puts you at ease. He's so he's a walking little love ball and he's sweet and he's curious and he could very easily sit in his beautiful mansion and put his feet up because he's done plenty in this life. And he doesn't. He lives with such purpose and immediacy of wanting to tell stories about our common humanity. He is... I realize for people, I should just back up and say Norman Lear, legendary producer. Legendary one producer. One day at a time. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swathers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swathers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swathers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the elephant and Freddy the duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. 
And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Is a show that you are now show running, but was originally a show. Yes, but mo- most famously, I would say All in the Family, yes. The Jeffersons, Maud. Yes. Um, was really incorporating sociocultural issues into his work before other people were before, doing it. Way before anyone else was, was doing it. People were doing sort of silly sitcoms, and he was doing really socially conscious yeah. sitcoms where people were talking about real things. Woke before people were woke. Yep. That's right. That's right. And so then when you get the offer, do you just say yes? No, I talked to him. We talked for a long time. And I I felt comfortable enough to say, I'm not sure you should do this. And he said, why? And I said, because the Latino experience, we're hard on work. We're hard on it. And I think we're hard on it because there is a starvation in our community for actual representation. Right. So when something exists, all Latinos want it to represent them, but it can't possibly Right. So then what happens is instead of getting really specific, I think networks and studios in the past sort of do a pan Latino thing that ends up being worse. And then you're out. Right. It feels like someone got in there. It feels like a stereotype and you're out. And he's like, well, what would you do? What if you were divorced? What would that look like? And what? And I was like, well, I don't want to entertain that. I said, well, my mom, my parents come to my house every day. Literally, my dad just walked into my house to pick up my kids to take them to camp. My parents are a humongous part of my life. So if. If I got divorced, they'd live with me, the thousand percent. And then he was very like, what's your mom like? And I started talking about my mom. I said, picture Rita Moreno, because I've been saying that my whole life. When I talk about my mom, I say, picture Rita Moreno. And they go, oh, okay, that's my that's my mom. Little feisty fireball. Um, and uh, he goes, oh, I'm friends with Rita. We should, that's great. We can call Rita. So at the end of the meeting, he just said, well, let's do that. Let's do th- that show. Okay, so let's talk about it because you're my first Cubanita because I am self-conscious about the fact that I am Cuban and I was like, I can't stack this thing with other Cubans. <laughs> um, so first, let's talk about your family story. Both your parents come during Pedro Ban mm-hmm. and they end up in Oregon. Oregon. So I'm, I'm a Jersey Cuban and yeah. I'm married to a Miami Cuban, but I don't know anything about the Oregon Cubans. Listen, the Cuban diaspora is huge yep. because of that influx and then the Mariels. I mean, there were so many influxes, right, of Cubans coming in. To this day. So to this day. So they're they're plopped all over this country. And so yes, the largest New Jersey and Miami are the two hugest populations. But there were churches that would take in many Cuban kids all over. So for whatever reason, both my parents were in a group that went to Portland, Oregon. There were Catholic charities that took them in, that um, fostered them, and that helped my family until my grandparents were able to come over, which they did. Both sides were able to come over. And then they settled in Portland. So they lived there for the majority until I was 14, and then we moved to San Diego. So I grew up in a very 
Cuban community in Portland. All the people I knew were Cuban. I th- you know, the, the, these are the days where everyone said Tio Tia, and you're not really Tio Tia, but that's what you're calling everyone. <laughs> but what does that look like? Because in one of the things that's different between Jersey and Miami is like the the I think the proximity to Cuba makes it different, where it's like the politics are real in both places, yes. but it's still just so much more raw in Miami. So what was it actually like? Like, did you grow up speaking Spanish? Did you grow up eating Cuban food? Yeah. Yes. I grew up speaking Spanish and, and eating Cuban food. And I mean, every birthday party is 100 people. I grew up with all of that and all the Cuban, everyone knows everyone. Everyone's, you know, the Radio Bemba's alive and well. And, you know, like it was great. But also the only Latinos I grew up with were Cubans. That was the thing that was different. When I moved to San Diego, I was like, what? There's Whoa, other people? Yeah. That's crazy because the only Latinos I knew were Cubans. And and I have to say, growing up, I didn't know there was such a thing as Latino. So like I, right. I grew up in a very diverse place, but still like people were Cuban, Puerto Rican, Colombian, like no one referred to themselves as a Latino. Right. But it really, all of a sudden, like I remember my mind just exploding. Yes. When I was like, oh, there are more of us? And yes. oh, and we're a minority? Yes. I had oh, no believe idea. me. No. Well, also listen. The biggest thing I noticed when I moved to San Diego was my Mexican friends would be self-conscious about speaking Spanish, would be um, self-conscious about their skin color, would be self-conscious. And I was like, what? Like, there's nothing about the Cuban experience that I grew up with that was self-conscious about anything. My parents led me to believe that being Cuban was my superpower, and it's what made me maybe better than other people. I mean, not, not joking. So it was interesting because I feel like my... My being Cuban, I, I didn't have a negative experience growing up until we moved to San Diego and I started seeing my brother who's darker experience stuff. But he experienced stuff because people thought he was Mexican. And I was like, man, what's going on? Why is everyone so hard on these Mexicans? What's going It just had never occurred to me how different people are, are treated right. differently and also the colorism in our in our own society because growing up, like you said, yes, in Oregon, never we were never Latino. In Oregon, we were Cuban. When I moved to San Diego and I realized, oh, there's a bunch, and then you start being a, one of many and you want to sort of be inclusive of them, then I started referring to myself as Latina. I bring it up because I have to imagine it was a tension point for you in your reality as being Cuban. So you decide that the family in one day at a time modeled after your own family is going to be Cuban, but you're, you do that with the knowledge that we're a minority group within the Latino population of the United States. I would say the inclusion of the parent character is what made it really something that was passionate for me. When you're talking about having an older person on the show and having the Lydia character on the show, I just was like, there's so much about the Cuban experience that I can tell through her that I would love to do. I I just, the specificity of that, honoring my grandparents, honoring my parents, I would love to do that. And so I told Norman and Mike Royce, my, my partner on this, I said, you know, look, at some point they're going to ask that they be Mexican. Watch. And they did. And to Norman and Mike's credit, they said, listen, this specific story, we're trying to be really specific. We're hoping that that specificity will actually be more universal. We'd like to keep them Cuban for this show. And to Netflix and Sony's uh, uh, credit, they said, okay. So I was able to tell those stories. I was able to do a Shea t-shirt story. I was able to do the Pedro Pan story many times. I was able to do immigration stories through the Cuban perspective. That was really, really important to me. And so I'm really grateful. Did you know you could do this job before you started doing it? I thought I could, yes. 
And then I, I love it. It's my favorite job. I love being a showrunner. <laughs> I love saying yes or no and fighting for things. I think what people also don't know in the, in the grand scheme, they don't know how many fights there are. It's a lot of fighting. Like, I have stopped fighting with people on the internet when they quibble about some small thing here or there because they have no idea the journey of getting one Cuban show on television. It's hard. So, like, let good things be good. Let good things be good. Yeah. When I read your Wikipedia page, what I love about it is you, you've done every job. You've done, and you've done everything in every medium. So, award winning plays, web series, short films, sketch comedy groups, every writer's room. And now you get your moment. What is the closest you ever came to quitting? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, for a minute, it was a daily thought. <laughs> It was, it was, because I think the thing that makes me very emotional about being on this show is not only do I have a moment, but I am very supported. And I can't tell you how yes. important the support is. Um, Mike Royce has healed so much in my heart as a creator because I sat in rooms for years where I would have white men look at me like, why are you here? You're only here because of your last name. You're only here because you're female. Uh, what you say is not valuable. I mean, and my experiences in rooms have been fairly positive. I haven't even been in a terrible room, but even I experienced that in a lot of the rooms I was in. And it makes you doubt yourself as a creative person. It does make you go like, oh, maybe I'm not good at this. And then you sort of retreat. And I would start to devise things that like, what can I do in the room so I'm not crying and I can move past this moment. And one of them would be grocery list, right? So I'd make a grocery list. And I remember one day I was in a room with a guy who was never kind to me. And he saw me making notes and he looked, he grabbed my notepad and he saw my grocery list that I was making so that I wouldn't cry because I had just pitched something. And he was like, Ugh. It was just like, oh, of course. Um, this was the same guy that would, that after, you know, I turned a script in, he would be like, oh, don't get salsa on the script when you turn it in. And then later was like, hey, it's cool that we make jokes about like your, like your ethnicity. And I was like, well, be accurate because Cubans actually don't have salsa. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was like these little digs that were hard. And the more women would be in rooms, the more lovely, you know, look, there were also a lot of white guys that were awesome. So I, it's not, this is not a anti-white guy. I'm married to an amazing white guy who I've got, I, I've got white friends. Who, and by the way, by the way, the other thing that, that I want to say of this thing, I didn't even know I wasn't white till I moved to San Diego because I grew up thinking I was white a thousand percent. And, and Cubans you, think and, we're white. Cubans and, identify as and white. you are white. Yes, I racially. am Racially. Racially. Um, but and in you, a writer's room, in a writer's room, definitely not white. <laughs> definitely not. Um, so there was a lot of times. And I think the thing that fueled me, thankfully, I think is my parents, Cuban spirit. You start feeling hurt. You double down. History of them. So for those of us who are watching you, right. It's just like on Let's the rise. Yes. It's all happening. Yes. Like she wanted to shonda it up and it's happening and yes. it's happening for her and it's happening for us. And then there's always like a record scratch. Yeah. For those of us who don't know, what does it take to pitch a show? What does oh. it take to get a show picked up? And then 
What is it like when it doesn't turn out exactly the way you thought it was going to? So when you pitch a show, you put together the characters, the world, what the pilot episode is, and then what it is in series. So History of Them was really based on my daughter who hates social media. So she doesn't want to be on Facebook ever. So the one thing she likes is the on this day. On this day four years ago, right? She loves that. And so that's why she allows family photos to go on. So like, I think Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, she'll allow a family photo to go on Facebook because she likes being able to look back. And she said like, it's kind of like a scrapbook, mommy. And I thought, oh my God, it is a scrapbook. My grandkids, if they want, will know what I ate on certain days. If I could have this for my grandparents, like amazing. So the history of them is a daughter in the future tracking her parents' relationship by looking at their social media and putting pieces together. She's heard the stories, now she's looking back. And so it has a How I Met Your Mother element in that it's somebody looking back. But I also really wanted to talk about how we curate our lives, how fights are happening and then you take a happy photo, all of that stuff that I still feel is something that I would love to explore in series. I also wanted to show a loving Latino couple. It was very important to me. I think especially Latino men on television are portrayed really just as drug dealers and cops and firemen or as like sexy Latin lovers and nothing else. So to be in a comedy where there's a loving Cuban father was so important to me to honor my dad, who's like the biggest yummy love bug ever. So this is a relationship of two people that love each other and are in a loving, committed relationship. And they sort of become the parents to this other, to this group of friends. And uh, it's about how these two people meet and fall in love. So I pitched it. It was, there was a bidding war for it. um, And CBS paid the most. So we did it at CBS. CBS was very lovely to me. You did it, meaning you shot the pilot? We shot the pilot. Um, We cast it. The wonderful Anna Villafania was my lead. And uh, Brett Dyer from Jane the Virgin was played um, a version of my husband. And then their friend group, which was a, a diverse friend group. So, yeah, we shot it. I had a great experience. CBS loved it. Uh, and then at the end of the day, they get to pick four shows, you know, and we weren't one of them. I know you want to Shonda it up, meaning you I want do. a production company exist on multiple platforms, multiple mediums. Yes. What do the rest of us need to do to support you? <sighs> Let good things be good. I would say support other Latin creators as well. What does that look like? That looks like giving things a shot. It's interesting. I think as a community, we are quick to say no because we've been hurt. And I get I get it. I think let's try to heal our hearts by seeing that when one of us wins, all of us wins. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now, the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me. Sound edited by Alua Kemi Aladisui. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you.
a little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.